It's December 28th, 1989, in Newcastle, Australia. In the days following Christmas and before New Year's, much of the town is relaxing on holiday. It's a bright summer's day and, unusually, there's no Boxing Day test match to watch on TV. People spent time with their families and their friends, sometimes at the popular Newcastle Workers' Club. Approaching 10.30am, the unthinkable happens. Earthquake terror. Tonight, Newcastle is counting the cost of Australia's first deadly quake. Frantic rescue efforts continue tonight in Newcastle, a city shattered by Australia's most devastating earthquake. At least six people are confirmed dead, more than 120 have been injured, and dozens appeared trapped in the rubble of collapsed buildings. The official count afterwards was 13 people dead. Nine from the workers' club alone. 35,000 homes, 147 schools and 3,000 other buildings were damaged in some way, with a total rebuild bill of over 4 billion Australian dollars, which is over 8 billion dollars in today's money. It was Australia's first earthquake to claim a human life. The town, understandably, was devastated. It was a long rebuilding process, with some lives never the same. To say football could fix this problem would be a clumsy statement, but the sense of community leading up to the 1997 ARL Grand Final really felt like a town clinging to hope after some tough times. The night's colours of blue and red were everywhere to be found, some even coloured their house. Everyone was talking about Matty Johns and his spiral passes, Robbie O'Davis and his electrifying kick returns, the passion of the Chief, or just about everything about Joey Johns. Their task wasn't to be easy. Defending Premiers Manly were top of the table after the home and away season and had beaten the Knights three times in three previous encounters earlier in the year. Packed with international representatives and grand final experience, the Sea Eagles were surely favourites. No Knights player had ever been to a grand final before. But fate was on their side. My name is Bo Nicholson and you're listening to Above the Horizontal, a conversation podcast about the greatest game of all, Rugby League. Kieran Gibson is sadly unavailable today, but I'm joined by regular panellist Miles Stedman to take a deep dive into the 1997 ARL Grand Final between the Newcastle Knights and the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles. We'll also have some fun with some quiz questions and of course, the Above the Horizontal Awards. Let's get into it. All right, I'm joined tonight by uh, just the one uh, regular panellist. We we haven't got Kieran Gibson tonight. He's uh, assured us that he's desperately sad missing out tonight, uh, but he has some pretty intense workload with his university studies. So I'm joined tonight by Miles Stedman. Miles, uh, we're talking about the, uh, the Sea Eagles and the Knights in 1997. How old were you when this grand final happened? <laughs> I was, um, uh, it was September, wasn't it? October. I was, I'm going to say, 22 months old. 22 months old. Indeed. Oh, <laughs> Does that make e- you feel old? Yeah, it does. I was nine uh, <laughs> years old, uh, not, not months. Um, I, I can only imagine that you were even cuter than you are now. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> uh, As I mentioned, we are talking about that very, very famous uh, grand final the first one that the Knights ever did win, not to not to spoil anything, Miles. Uh, Manly right. going into it as heavy favourites. The Knights as the uh, the working class underdogs, if you will. Surely one of the great grand finals. So let's get into it. Last year, and now Paul Harrigan leads the team out that has got the balance of power when it comes to supporters. Listen to this when they make their way onto the football stadium it will be a tremendous reception 
none of them have witnessed before. Here it is. So the fledglings are out there, led by Paul Harrigan. Many of them have had big match experience, but none of them have been to a grand final. One thing I, I noticed from basically from the kickoff was that the Knights came out full of intent. They they were really rushing out of the line. They were led, uh, I was going to say honourably, but maybe not so much. By their captain, dishonorably. <laughs> dishonorably by their captain, uh, Paul the Chief Harrigan, who, frankly, Miles, ignored the rules for the first five minutes, uh, clotheslining his opposing skipper, who happened to be something like 300 centimetres shorter, uh, <laughs> Jeff Tuvey, in just the second minute, before committing another reckless high shot just minutes later on Daniel Gartner. Uh, I've got to say, uh, in today's day and age, he would have been lucky to stay on the field. He would have been lucky to have played next season. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I do remember a few heavy penalties uh, in the NRL era, and this is obviously the last game before the NRL era. So, yes, Paul Chief Harrigan, lucky to even stay on the field, but... Uh, the Seagulls seemed a bit more composed to me. They they seemed happy to let the Knights uh, come out and run themselves ragged. And the Seagulls were just sort of playing one-out football, not buying into all the, the push and shove, not rushing out of the line. And as it turns out, the Knights had the first opportunity to score uh, via a penalty goal uh, from a fair way out, Miles. Yeah, the... Um you mentioned the Seagulls seeming more composed and um, it, it almost seems as if uh, Andrew Johns almost wanted to settle his troops um, by taking this this penalty goal. It was an, an interesting tactic in the first half where they had a, a few penalties that were certainly within kickable range, but maybe based on how the Knights were playing, you would, you would have thought they would have gone for it, but they instead chose to, to kick the penalty goal. Which he actually missed. Uh, it was quite a bad miss, actually. It was 40 metres out, 15 in from touch, so it was an optimistic kick at goal. Uh, he missed it pretty badly. From that actual recovery, the ball didn't go dead, the Seagulls ran the field, uh, ran it downfield with John Hopawate. Later on, about a minute later, they won a scrum against the feed, which is very 1997 uh, compared to 2020. <laughs> we, just, we just don't see that sort of thing anymore. And in the ninth minute, they managed to put John Hopawati over for a try. 15 metres away from the Newcastle line. They come down the short side. Kossett turns it back to the open. Through the hands of Neb, Finding field. Across for Craig Innes. Hopawati will score. Hopawati puts it over the line. First try of the grand final. After the try, John Hopawati gets up and he's all bluster and he shoves... Robbie O'Davis in the chest like a bit of a cockhead that he later proved to be <laughs> John Hopperwadi. But Miles, it wasn't all bad from Big Hopper. No, cockhead that he may be, um, it's it's a lot to be said for John that he, he was the perfect position of winger, I think. You see a lot these days, wings want to, especially the really dangerous ones like the Josh Addo cars, and you see them wanting to come infield a lot and contribute. And, and while it's good, John Hopperwadi would not have scored this try if he was not in, in the perfect position in the first place. And that's how he bagged himself, I think, uh, almost almost 20 for the season. I know Craig Innes led the, the league in tries that year with 22, but uh, Hopper got up there as well. And look, Craig Innes was the left centre and Hopper Whitey the left winger, so that's a that's a combined total of around about 40 tries, give or take. It is. Um, which is pretty excellent strike rate, uh, and it shows uh, the fact that the Seagulls really liked going to that side. Alright, it's quiz time, and remember, no cheating. Question 1. The Knights and the Sea Eagles contested the ARL Grand Final in 1997. Which two teams contested the Australian Super League equivalent? Be sure to keep listening for the rest of the questions, and of course, for the answers. Now, let's get back to the game. So the score is 6-0 after Shannon Nevin converts just 10 minutes uh, into the game. Obviously, the Knights would have been a little bit shell-shocked. They would have been hoping for a better start than that. Uh, I noticed that the tactics, uh, you see that 
they had the two Johns boys in the halves, obviously, Andrew Johns and Matthew Johns, and they were just throwing these big, beautiful spiral passes that were, like, in two passes, they'd cover, like, 40 or 50 metres of the field, whereas the Seagulls seemed to be keeping things uh, a, a little bit more simple, as we said, they were keeping very composed. In about the 15th minute, though, injuries did strike the Seagulls pretty hard. Jeff Toovey went off uh, with what seemed to be a bit of a concussion. Uh, Craig Field went off injured as well. So they had both of their starting halves off before the 20th minute. Thankfully, they had a guy named Cliff Lyons on the bench. Uh, Cliff Lyons, a manly legend, Miles. Indeed. Uh, he's, he's a classy guy. and he's. Uh, I was thinking about this earlier. He's He's, in a way, a, a little bit like the the olden-day Luke Lewis in that he's he's able to fill in, in basically anywhere, in this case, uh, a little bit more in the forwards, or at least that was uh, the plan for him this season. But in this case, he's filling in in the halves, and he, it's almost like he's he's playing in slow motion when you watch him play with his, his little pirouettes and, and pivots and, and offloads and, and that sort of thing. He's, he's a really classy player, and... He's one of those, I know it's a bit of a cliche thing to say, but he's one of those players for, for whom the, the game really slows down. I'm glad you say that because in the 23rd minute, right after Andrew Johns goes down a blindside and is literally inches from scoring, only to be not denied by pretty incredible defence by your mate, John Hopawati. Um, <laughs> we both agree, by the way, that that was the Matt Singh Award for best try saver, hands down, absolutely brilliant moment from John Hopawati. A minute later, uh, Hopper is involved again for the Seagulls' second try. Pulled down by Hughes, who's playing in the centres. Down the short side. The Lions, and then in us and a quick ball for Hopawati, and back in field for Lions. On the outside, it's Toovey. Toovey gets the little legs pumping. Now, Innes will score. Innes is over the line. Manley's second try is there. A big thank you must go to Cliff Lyons, who, as you said, seemed to be just playing a little bit in slow motion and taking the lead while Tuvi and Field were either off the field or playing a little bit busted. Uh, Craig Innes goes in to score, making it 10-0 uh, with Shannon Nevin missing the conversion. Now, at this point, Miles, you might remember that the commentators were talking a lot about the Andrew Johns injury that he had uh before the game do you remember that yeah uh, i do he uh he had a punctured lung i believe and so it's it's pretty incredible that he played on in this game it's it's funny isn't it we we um as we as we should we idolize guys like sam burgess who play on through uh very obvious uh pain through a game but it's when you're trying to suck in the big ones in the game um, a punctured lung is just about the the worst thing you could hope for in a rugby league game Absolutely, and as a as a halfback, he was he was pivotal to his team's chances. We we mentioned before that he was key to their expansive style, but his varied skill set was was really quite something. And by about the twenty seventh minute, he was clearly injured, very uncomfortable. And as you said, he did have a punctured lung. In fact, just that Tuesday, he had surgery on that punctured lung. They had Leo Dinova, who played about half the season as the halfback, ready to go. As the 18th man, should Andrew Johns not be fit, he was past fit. I don't think he would have been past in this day and age, although <laughs> Cooper Cronk 2018 might say otherwise. In the 28th minute, just a minute after looking extremely uncomfortable, Johns himself takes a penalty goal to get the score to 10 points to 2, which, Miles, I don't know, it seems like a bit of an unusual tactic. Yeah, we. Um, I, I did touch on this a bit before, but it seems like, and, and maybe this is through Andrew's own... Um, conservative nature of knowing that he was playing busted um but they as i said they they go to the penalty goal a lot more frequently than, than you think they would with the attack made up of, of the johns brothers and and paul harrigan and robbie o davis uh, it's an interesting one especially when you're down 10 points so maybe andrew had the read on his team that they they needed the settling down or that they they needed the points on the board to validate themselves but yeah, I thought it was, uh, again, I thought it was an interesting tactic to so frequently choose to kick the penalty goal. And I've got to say, if, if they were looking for um, a little bit of a boost, it seemed to come their way. And as we've talked about with Andrew Johns, despite his injury, he he really was a pretty special talent. And it was around about the half an hour mark that he started to come into his own. He's just kicked that penalty goal. About the 32nd minute, he kicks a, a beautiful, lovely left-footed kick from about 30 metres out, which traps... 
representative winger Danny Moore in the in-goal area, uh, keeping the pressure on the Seagulls. A couple of minutes later, from a scrum win about 10 metres out on the right-hand side of the field, the Knights finally crossed the stripe. Newcastle with the food. Matthew Jones. And away, Bro Davis. A dummy to Craigie. He'll go over. Robbie O'Davis. Robbie O'Davis. Miles, how about that Robbie O'Davis try? Man, it, it boggles the mind that uh, you see something like this from Robbie O'Davis and the, yet the Knights didn't put the ball in his hands more often. They had plenty of scrum feeds in this first half in which to do so, especially uh, also plays uh, in the Seagulls' red zone. Yet this is the only time in the entire half that they seem to go to Robbie O straight from the scrum. And it, it's, it's I, um, I'm not sure how old Ivan Cleary was during this game. I know he was he was probably playing in the league, so maybe in his 20s. But he was, yeah. He, he puts uh, Sean Johnson in a lot of situations like this when he was uh, head coach of the Warriors. Um, and they're, they're both very quick and, and dynamic players. And, and Robbie O uh, undresses the Seagulls for this, for this drive, I think it's fair to say. I've got to give a, a bit of a an unwanted shout-out to Danny Moore, who uh, took the dummy of all dummies and uh, <laughs> turns his back on Robbie O'Davis, who has the ball, uh, and runs away from him, uh, where the usual wisdom would be to actually attempt the tackle um, <laughs> <laughs> or force the pass. But, uh, you know, you don't get to play for Australia for nothing, do you, Danny? Uh, anyway, the score is 10-8 now after Andrew Johns has converted from the left side of the field. And this match looks like it's anyone's heading into half time before a little bit more of that Cliff Lyons magic. Tooby! Field! They're trying to get to the extreme left. Lyons has put Nevin in! Nevin's in! Manley's third try! Well, that'll hurt to this Manley side. And they did it through some quality possession at this end of the field that was given up by Paul Harrigan early in the tackle count. Like, we've talked about Robbie O'Davis and, and, uh, and what he brings to the Knights team, but uh, Shannon Nevin, quite an inexperienced uh, fullback, and in comparison, you'd say, uh, unfavoured. Uh, he was... He was having a bit of an impact on this game. Yeah, he was. Um, and it was important for him to do so, given the departure of, of Matthew Ridge uh, back home the year before, or I should say at the, um, at the end of last season. So he had a big job to do in, in filling Ridge's boots, and he's doing it well in this game. He's uh, helping the Seagulls claw back the advantage uh, right before the break. And I think in general, he had a, a pretty good first half. You could almost say that uh, Sands the try... Um, from Robbie O'Davis, he, he might have even had the better of the first half between the two fullbacks. I remember a number of, of pretty key bomb defusals. You know that Andrew Johns and Matthew Johns are going to pepper you with pinpoint mm. kicks, and he was he was right up to the task. And he was Johnny on the spot when Cliff Lyons threw a little bit of sleight of hand to put him through, uh, making the score 16 points to 8 at half time. Now, interestingly, the message from Manly coach Bob Fulton, an immortal and, and highly respected coach who had coached at the international level, he encouraged his troops to focus on completion rates and discipline. So he obviously seemed confident that with an eight-point lead and the, the troops that he had out in the field, that with good disciplined percentage plays, they'd be able to get the job done. Malcolm Reilly, also a, a legendary player himself, uh, the coach of the Newcastle Knights, uh, one of the Knights have really focused on shutting down the offloads of the Sea Eagles. He, he wanted to minimise that impact that they had around there. Uh, and obviously he was hoping that the the significant aces he had on his sleeve in the, in the form of O'Davis and the Johns brothers would be enough to get them through. It's quiz time again. Remember, no cheating. Question two. Can you name all four starting centres for this grand final? This one might stop a couple of people. Be sure to keep listening for the rest of the questions and, of course, for the answers. Now, let's get back to the game. As the second half rolls in, it's starting to get a little bit ratty. Adam McDougall with a, with a, with a full, uh, as you would say, salad on top. Um, back in the late 90s uh, 
treated Jeff Tuvey's face like a doormat before an ugly shot from Stephen Crow uh, riled up Cliff Lyons. Uh, it was starting to get, as I said, a little bit ratty, but there was still a match to be played. Jeff Tuvey was certain to score in the 50th minute, if not for a fantastic try-saver from Robbie O'Davis, which would have, of course, won him the Matt Singer Award for best try-saver had it not been for John Hopperwadi in the first half. So remember, the score is 16 points to 8 to the Manly Sea Eagles. If Tuvey scores there, those uh, good completion rates are probably enough to get Manly over the line. However, O'Davis scrambles, makes a one-on-one tackle. Then he scrambles back to defuse a Cliff Lyons bomb later that set to keep the score 16 points to 8 with 30 minutes to play. Robbie O, not just an attacking threat, Miles. No, he, he certainly wasn't. Um, I think that yeah, maybe of any position on the field, it's it's most important to do the basics as a fullback. Things like bomb defusals and, and tackles at the back when there's, there's no other defenders. So uh, you see that Robbie O... Uh, probably having learned these skills as a young man, built the rest of his brilliant offensive game off the back of that. And you don't get to, to play for New South Wales, play for Australia, uh, just by being a, a fantastic attacking fullback. And he certainly wasn't just that. I'm not letting you steal him, though, Miles. He was a Queenslander. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Robbie Ross I had my head there for a moment. Yes, Robbie Ross. But Robbie O'Davis, uh, of, of course, famously got his break uh, for Queensland uh, in 1995 when the uh, Super League basically stole most of the good players that Queensland had to offer. Uh, he got Which his... by Fatty, I believe. Yes, you're quite right. Yes, I know Queensland history. <laughs> look, at, look at you go. Uh, <laughs> you must learn some things about Queensland up in Canada. It must be the association <laughs> with, the, with the Queen. Uh, exactly. In the 55th minute, so not, uh, not long after that uh, incredible effort from Robbie O, uh, the Knights take a penalty goal to bring them within a converted try at 16 points to 10, as you mentioned earlier. They did like to just build the score up slowly, try and stay in the hunt. The Seagulls are continuing to play their minimalist style. The Knights are obviously trying a bit harder to score some points, and as we talked about, they have the amazing skills of the Johns brothers to uh, to implement that. In the 62nd minute, uh, guess who? Paul Harrigan goes for a head-high tackle again, and Shannon Nevin is given a penalty attempt to make the score 18 points to 10 with just 18 minutes left. But Miles, he misses. He does, and this is important for, for a number of reasons. And, and look, I, I will add that I absolutely hate putting it on goal kickers for, you know, uh, a, a loss by two points or a win by two points and, and playing that sort of game. But this really is a pivotal miss because not only does it... Um, it's a grand final, so every play counts. And... They lose the chance here to go up by eight points, and of course that would have been a winning penalty goal, as we'd find out in the end. But also, you see Darren Albert here, who um, uh, would play a bigger part in the in later on in the game, as as we know. Um, he he runs it out for about forty meters, and that's important not only because it's uh, a great play for the Knights, but the the Seagulls would really begin to uh, build up some momentum prior to that penalty attempt. So it was a, a bit of an all or nothing shot at goal, really, and, and they lose a lot of that momentum um, through that Darren Albert run. Darren Albert is is rightly remembered as a, as a bit of a hero for uh, his last-minute try. Uh, he's also remembered as absolute quicksilver. The guy could certainly run the ball, but in the 68th minute, I've got to tell you, Miles, um, <laughs> he showed exactly why wingers should catch the ball and run. They should not, generally speaking, throw cut-out passes. Uh, he absolutely, and and you agreed with me, I know, when we did our voting, takes home the Greg Inglis Award for deserving to have his licence revoked when, in the 68th minute, when the score is 16 points to 10 in the opposition's favour, he jumps in the dummy half, only three metres out from his own line, throws a ridiculous cut-out pass across the face of goal. The pass, predictably, goes to no one, and Adam Muir, the second rower for the Knights, desperately goes back to retrieve it before being trapped in goal, presenting the Seagulls with a golden opportunity to seal the game via a field goal. Darren Albert's cut-out passing license revoked, as far as I'm concerned, Miles, but... The Seagulls, they, they just couldn't seem to make it happen. And, and a few minutes later, they, they had a golden opportunity there. Yeah, I think they actually had a few golden opportunities in this last, or well, not last 10 minutes, but the, the 
70th to 75th minute, they I think they miss a few field goals, and in particular one from, uh, I think it was actually Craig Field um, that misses from virtually straight in front after a, a long, long set of possession and um, uh, a fair few sets in the Knights' red zone. And you, you seem to notice after this that a lot of the, the Seagulls' heads kind of drop, and a lot of the, in contrast, a lot of the Knights... Uh, grow about a, a few feet taller after a strong defensive stand and that seems like it would um, set the stage for the, the re- remainder of this game. Now you're right because I mean we're 16-10 and Manly, let's not forget that in 1995 they were the raging favourites to win the competition only to be beaten by the 7th place Canterbury Bankstown Bulldogs in the grand final. In 1996 again comfortably favourites and they do indeed beat the St. George Dragons 20 points to 8. So you get to the grand final in 1997 it's half a competition because the Super League's taken the other half. They are comfortably the best team in the ARL. They're 16-10 in front with less than 10 minutes left. They are expected to get this job done. The Knights have nothing to lose. They start throwing the ball around. Heck, even Adam Muir, a second rower, throws it around. Sure, it may have been forward. Okay, <laughs> it, 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 it may have right. it may have looked more like a, a sport that you are more accustomed to me, and that is gridiron. <laughs> uh, but he's sent Troy Fletcher downfield. He's coming off the off the bench as Fletcher makes a big run. Fletcher, the replacement, twenty-five away from the manly line. Andrew Johns for his brother. Floating pass out for Conley. Now for Hughes. Back in field, Bro Davis. Now a dummy, and he looks for support. Matthew is there. Drifts across the ground. Dummies to Muir. Picks up Craigie. Ten metres from the man in line. Jackson. Matthew John. Now Andrew. Andrew John puts the dummy together. Then he picks up O'Davis. O'Davis looking for his second try. It's a tie. He's on the line. I think it's a try. He has put it over the line. Robbie O'Davis has scored his second try. The scores are locked at 16. Who, who do you feel has all the running here? We know what history says, but you could just sort of see it, couldn't you? You really could see it. Um, as I said a little bit earlier on, the Knights' heads all lifted after that massive defensive um, stand that they had on their own try line. And, and you can kind of see the attacking weapons in their side, obviously Robbie O'Davis, but also the, the Johns brothers and even a little bit of, of young Owen Craigie in this one kind of just lift a little bit and, and uh, believe that they can get across the line here. And uh, they really take advantage of uh, a labouring Seagulls who you feel really did throw their, their one big knockout punch with that field goal and that extended uh, set of possessions. So you really do see the, the game turn from one side to the other here, don't you, Bo? Absolutely. And and for the last five minutes, it really did feel like if any team was going to score, it was going to be the Knights. Matty Johns thought he had his moment. He takes a field goal attempt. He was probably the, the better field goal exponent of the two Johns brothers in that mm-hmm. time of history. He hits the upright. It goes back to Manly. They have to recover it from 10 metres out in their final set. That was their last chance to have the ball. They make their way just into the Knights' half, but John Hoppawati gets tackled on the last 40 metres out from the Knights' line. The Knights have one set. Fifth tackle. This is it. End the chance. Andrew Jones. Here it is. A.O. knocked down by Manly. Six little tackles. There's 20 seconds on the clock. Albert. He will play it, 21 metres away. Down the blind, Andrew John. Inside for Albert. Albert will score! Albert will score! Newcastle have won the grand final. Albert is over. Manley has been beaten by Newcastle on full time. Six seconds to go, and Albert has scored... An incredible try. Newcastle have won Rugby League's crown. Andrew Johns found space on the short side. He went down and he found Darren Albert. Can you believe? It does not get any better than that. What we have just witnessed in the last five minutes, it doesn't get any better. It's a fairy tale. 
What a moment in rugby league history for us, and this is the most important thing I think, in Above the Horizontal, the awards. It's it's not about the Premiership, it's not about the Optus Cup for the Newcastle Knights. <laughs> for them it's <laughs> for them it is about these two awards. Best moment, obviously, goes to Darren Albert crossing the line, like just wide open pastures except for a, a despairing ankle tap attempt from Mark Carroll but also Andrew Johns is crowned with the Cometh the Hour Award for having the skills the vision and the courage to pull off that play as the clock winds down to zero and the siren approaches the Knights win 22-16 to winning the only Optus Cup that was ever contested and granting the town of Newcastle their first of two premierships to date you see things like this occasionally you know throwing in my knowledge of other sports um uh, like the much like the new orleans saints winning the super bowl after uh, after hurricane katrina it's it's good to see uh towns and cities and their respective teams lift um for the people that uh whose hopes uh, and and happiness really lives and dies on their hills so you know good on the knights for taking this one home and they would uh, do so about i think uh four years later you're dead right. 2001 was the next time they would win. Andrew Johns, again, the architect of that with uh, with a staring ever from Ben Kennedy. Robbie O'Davis was again there to win it. Uh, Matthew Johns was not. Uh, he was at the Sharks. Uh, Sean Rudder was the 5'8 for the Knights in that <laughs> game. And, and yeah, but it was a momentous occasion. And, and as a rugby league fan, what a moment. It's time for the final question. Remember, no cheating. Question three. Manly had two players on their reserves bench with state of origin experience. Who were they? Most people should get at least one of these players, but can they get the second? Keep listening to hear the answers for all three questions. Now, it's time for the Above the Horizontal Awards. All right. Let's get into the awards. Now, we've already covered some of the awards. We've, we've covered uh, Best Moment and Cometh the Hour because they were very obvious. Uh, we covered the Greg Inglis Award for deserving to have his license revoked, which was, of course, Darren Albert for one of the worst passes that he would ever have thrown. <laughs> um, and, and, of course, there was the uh, Matt Singh Award for Best Try Saver to John Hopperwadi for cutting down Andrew Johns just inches away from a from a blindside raid uh, being successful. So let's get into the the MVP miles now. For me, I've gone a little bit different. Uh, I've gone different to the Australian selectors who went with Robbie O'Davis, and I, I think that's a very 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 valid selection. Uh, I've gone with David Manson, who was the the lone referee of this game. Uh, as you may remember, back in this day, they had the one referee, and we we're about to... Uh, very topical right now. Yeah, we're about to enjoy that again. Uh, you're quite right. David Manson gets it for me. He, he didn't always get it right. But for the respectful way he handled the players at all times, and allowing the game to almost overflow with aggression... I think made it a far more enjoyable product to consume. Miles, who is your MVP? That's very political of you, Boris. So <laughs> congratulations. Uh, <laughs> I actually thought that you might say Robbie O'Davis. So in spite of him being, I think, clearly the best player on the ground, you're asking me most valuable here, and I would say that it would be Andrew Johns. Obviously, not only he, he assists the winning try there and, and gets his team some points on the board via, via the boot, but I think just being out there in the first place obviously these far better you know 10 or so wins above replacement whoever that was <laughs> as you as you said earlier but um he i think being out there in the first place probably did something for his teammates that would have uh, helped get them across the line absolutely uh his his replacement was leo dinover who uh who i'll come back to uh, in a, a future award spoiler alert uh the next award i'm going to go to miles is the turning point uh the the point that the game really did, I think, turn in the favour towards the Knights winning, as it turns out to be. Uh, for me, it was the Robbie O'Davis dual effort in the 50th minute to make that one-on-one try saver on Jeff Toovey, then scramble across and defuse that bomb moments later with the score at 16 points to 8. I think another try there in the Sea Eagles probably win by 14, 20 points. So for me, 
that's a big moment, and I think that's the turning point. Uh, Miles, what's the turning point for you? Uh, my turning point, I've hinted at this one, I think it was that Sea Eagles missed goal, in the, missed field goal rather, in the, the 72nd minute. The, their heads really just seemed to drop after that, and I've been over this a little bit before, but it seemed that that was, at the risk of sounding a little bit silly, that was when the game was won for the Knights, because they were never going to lose after that, I thought. They they really lifted in offence, and I think that that was the turning point of the game. And look, with the score at 16-10, to 10, it sounds bizarre to say that they were never going to lose it, but... <laughs> it, it just it, it was absolutely true and I mean hindsight's twenty twenty, of course but I, I think you're dead right it did it did definitely change the momentum of the game the next award is hey it's that guy uh, this is an award we give to maybe someone that has been forgotten by the sands of time maybe someone that we forgot exactly how good they were and, and that's where I've gone with this one I've gone with Nick Kosef who uh, look it's easy to forget that as the ARL came to an end at at the conclusion of this game. Kosef was probably the best lock in the competition. Uh, There's actually recently uh, a vote on the best lock in the last 30 years on NRL.com, and Jason Tamalolo, with recency bias, runs away with it. I voted for Bradley Clyde personally, but Nick Kosef, I can't even remember if he was in the top 10, but for about a three or four year period there, he was definitely the best lock in the comp. He played for Australia in previous seasons and made his debut for New South Wales in 1997, as well as being skillful enough to play 5'8 for Manly when they won the comp in 96. Uh, Kosov had a typically industrious game, running and tackling hard and slotting into 5'8 as Manly dealt with injuries to Tuvi and Craig Field during this final. So for me, hey, it's that guy is Nick Kosef. What about you, Miles? I'm glad you took it in a, a respectful direction because I'm going to take it the exact opposite way. I'm my hey, it's that guy is is Scott Fulton, and obviously the the name's the clue there. He's the son, one of a few sons actually of of Bob Fulton, the immortal. And why I wanted to mention Scott Fulton in particular is he made his debut for the Seagulls in 1993. Um, it was actually the the first round of the season when he did, which was also coincided with his father's first game back coaching the club so you know interesting there in in you know maybe a little bit of um uh, hereditary positional choice there but um also in 1999 when he played his last game for the club it was in round seven and that was actually also the last game that his father coached for the club and so look (laughs) You can draw your own conclusions there, but but not only that, but he actually also never played another grade game at, at, at any grade for Manly after that point. So clearly probably not the most popular guy at the club, but look, he played 40 ga- 49 games for the Seagulls. Um, and uh, it would have, uh, I think it's, it's fair to say that most of them were played because of who his pappy was. Miles, surely... Surely you're not suggesting nepotism. Like, <laughs> surely not. Not in rugby league. Rugby league has no place for nepotism, I think. You're no, right. no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, just ask the uh, the sons of Chris Anderson who played for the Melbourne Storm while he was coached. Just, there's no room for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the next award is the Cradle to the Grave Award for Commitment to the Thug Life. Now, this award can be given to someone who has been acting thuggish, of course. Uh, this award could also be given to someone that was just tough as a bag of nails um, and just kept getting up when he got beaten and beaten and beaten. And I, I would like to give a, an honourable mention to Jeff Toovey, who who uh, got treated quite poorly uh, by the by the Newcastle Knights uh, during this game. Uh, he was obviously a key player for the Seagulls. They targeted him and he kept getting up. Damn him, he, he, really, he really stuck it out. But for me, the Cradle to the Grave Award goes to Paul the Chief Harrigan. One of the game's gentlemen, actually. One of the, one of the nicest guys that I've ever met uh, from a rugby league team. Uh, the Chief played the game hard and fast. However, in his first grand final, he seemed a little excited by the occasion on grand final day and found himself penalised on three separate occasions for high shots, including picking on poor Jeff Toovey early in the match. Uh, for the remainder, Harrigan was inspirational and locked horns with Mark Carroll repeatedly in one of the sport's great personal rivalries. So for me, he gets the Cradle to the Grave Award for commitment to the thug life. Miles, 
Cradle to the Grave Award, who you got? Uh, I've gone with Adam McDougall. Uh, no prizes for guessing why, but look, um, we, we know about Adam that's um, later in his career, I think he'd get done for, for some sort of performance-enhancing drug yep. scandal. Um, and I think it's fair to say that he, he took his roid rage out on Jeff Tuvey's face in about the 60th minute of this one. <laughs> That's two quite controversial calls from you <laughs> two consecutive awards. You are dead right, though, McDougall. I think it was about 12 months later, 1998, at the end of 1998 or start of 1999. He did get done uh, for performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, I believe he did uh, claim that it wasn't uh, his fault or whatever, but it never is, is it? Um, and though after that, he, he actually went on to play for the Rabbitohs, so his career actually got worse after the PED scheme. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't really enhance much at all, it's got to be fair <laughs> to say. But uh, for a bit there, he was one of the most damaging wingers and centres in the game. Uh, best player on the losing side is the next award. I think there were plenty of candidates here. The Seagulls didn't actually play that badly. Um, I'm going to go with Mark Carroll. Uh, in an often scrappy match, Carroll was disciplined, made his tackles, never backed down from a physical challenge, and was desperate right to the last attempted tackle on Darren Albert as he heartbreakingly scored underneath the posts and then raised his hands in a jumping joy. Miles, who was the best player for the Seagulls? Look, I've, I can be accused of being a little bit romantic here, but I think it was... I'm going to go with John Hapawadi at least. Uh, I think that he was just about the only player on the ground who, and with the exception of his last touch, unfortunately... Was, was probably a perfect 10 every time he touched the ball. He he was fantastic in defence. He obviously he scored a try in the game. He was everywhere he needed to be. And look, I, I really loved Topper in this one, and I, I think it showed his value and, and why he was, I think, uh, a few years after, it became one of the foundational players for the West Tigers. So uh, I'm going to go with John Hopperwadi for this one. It's interesting that you say uh, it was a romantic choice to go for John Hobawadi. I, I think he, that was actually his defence when he repeatedly um, <laughs> poked people in the bum, that it was just a romantic gesture. Um, but <laughs> unfortunately, uh, it wasn't seen that way, and he was heavily suspended, of course. Uh, <laughs> Never played again, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think he was um, he was certainly ostracised from a lot of circles, put it that way. Um ironic given that he was so desperate to get into circles anyway it's, 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 we'll cut that out in post pro guys I, I, I don't know I don't know if we will <laughs> um, I'm actually pretty happy with that um, the next award is the Aaron Woods award for never going out of fashion of course named after Aaron Woods the extremely fashionable hairstylist who these days plies his trade for heck does he play for the Sharks these days he does doesn't he um, I can never keep track. He always feels like a West Tigers slash Bulldogs player, and then... Or did he go to the... No, he went to the Bulldogs and then the Sharks. That's what happened. Okay. Aaron Wood's award for never going out of fashion. For me, it's the Johns brothers hitting the Brewers hard after a win. My goodness, they made for some good television after that maiden premiership victory. Reed also terrible television. It was, it was a abomination. And Andrew has decided this method of celebration has never gone out of fashion, going back to this method repeatedly for far lesser occasions. Miles, the Aaron Woods Award for never going out of fashion. Well, I'm, I'm embarrassed by my, my choice here after hearing yours, but I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going for, for John Hopawati again. Um, and you could even, I guess you could say Darren Albert as well, but what I mean by that is uh, I think that never going out of fashion is a, a great positional wing. And I touched on that a bit before, but in this game, in, in multiple instances, uh, you see Hopawati and, and also Darren Albert in the perfect position exactly where they needed to be, not not infield looking for more work, not uh, pretending to be a prop or anything like that, but on the wing where a wing should be, and they both capitalise on it numerous times throughout, and Albert doing so to the, um, to the umpteenth degree. Absolutely, and, and I mean, again, history hasn't been kind to Hopawati for a number of reasons, but um, he was the better winger on this day than Darren Albert, and that's that's probably harsh on Darren Albert, but Hopawati was that good. Um, absolutely. And, and look, when you say positional wingers that, uh, you know, stay in their slot, a, a few come to mind. They're usually pretty underrated players. I think of guys like Hazem El Masri. I think of guys like Blacklock. I think of guys like Jason Nightingale. Right, the guys that are always going to be there when you need them to to finish a try, to make a last ditch tackle, 
uh, keep errors low. Alright, next award is Future Greats, uh, or Future Stars. We all know that I can be pedantic about my words, but in this particular case, my future great is, of course, Andrew Johns. So he has become an immortal. Uh, people will detract from Andrew Johns' legacy, uh, mostly because of the party boy antics I mentioned in the previous award, but push comes to shove, uh, I don't think I've seen a more naturally gifted player than Andrew Johns. Uh, someone that has the complete package, and he, he probably has been one of the greatest players of the last 30 years, I think that's pretty fair to say. Miles, who is your future great? Well, I would call you out on a, uh, if you're so, um, uh, I guess, so precious about your syntax, I would call you out and say that he is uh, a current great of this game um, at the time of, of playing. But no, my uh, my future great was, was Steve Menzies. And look, Steve was um, obviously a great player, but I, I think that he certainly built his legacy off the back of just how long he played. Uh, not, not obviously only in the NRL, but um, over in, in England as well. France rather because it was for the the Catalan Dragons in the in the Super League and he even he's known to turn out for uh, the Warringah Rats in the the local Sydney uh, rugby union competition these days. No so, way. He must be like seventy three. He's 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 not a, not a, not a young man anymore, but he he still he still gets going. So look, uh, I've I've picked out Steve Menzies for this one. I think he was in. Uh, I looked it up before. I think he was in game about. Game 150 in this in this one, and he, he goes on to play about, I think, f- close to 450 professional games. So he's uh, a titan of the game, and he's uh, this is uh, very early on in the piece for him. I think, actually, he's one of those really, um, again, underrated players. I think people remember him for his try-scoring feats, and, and that's obviously something to be remembered for as a great player. But, uh, again, with that, with that recent NRL.com poll... I was pretty happy to vote for him as the best second row of the last 30 years. I thought he was crazy wow. good. Um, and you and you got guys like Gordon Tallis that have those legacies that are remembered as greater players, and they're different players. But Menzies, apart from being a try scorer, was just a, a fantastic back rower, ran a really good line, had a great combination with his halves, made the dirty tackles, played all game. No, absolutely. I, I, I think he is a great player. And how dare you attack my syntax? How, <laughs> <laughs> how dare you? We, we could say that this is the moment that Johns attains greatness. So I'll, I'll settle for that. Right. No, right. I'll Fair settle enough. For that. So if, if he was current at that point, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, before things, it was better before, which is the next award. Uh, this is something that was better about Rugby League in 1997 than it is now, uh, 23 years later. Uh, for me, I've gone for a joke one, Adam McDougall's hairline, uh, <laughs> it was markedly better in 1997, so I'm going to go with, it was better before Adam McDougall's hairline. What was better before for you? <laughs> well, there's absolutely no way I'm disagreeing with you there, but uh, <laughs> my own personal choice, um, you could say I've gone for a joke one as well, but this is, I, I believe you me, this is no joke, the jersey's absolutely were better before than they are now. Oh. Uh, You've you got to love those, uh, especially the collars on the jerseys, but uh, the material they're made out of, the, uh, the the general aesthetic, there's there's proper lines and proper design going on. There's none of this wishy-washy gradient fades or, or superhero crap on the jerseys. Um, they have actual sponsors as well, like actual well-known sponsors. You've got PepsiCo and, and Stockland, who is... Uh, I'm not sure if you have them in, in Queensland, Bo, but... Uh, large retail chain down here in, in New South Wales. So yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think that um, absolutely jerseys look way better back then than they do these days. 100%. And I do like the fact that they were like baggy enough that you could make a jersey tackle. Oh, like... absolutely. That's a, you could say that was, uh, uh, I guess you could say that was uh, a, uh, better before in its own jersey tackles. Absolutely. I mean, like where would we be without the, Gordon Tallis jersey tackle on Brett Hodgson where he drags him about 300 metres across the sideline and then throws him into row Z. Um, but you know what, Miles? On second thoughts, it's not so bad now. And what is not so bad now is teams do not kick the ball dead from inside their own half. 
to be fair, it didn't happen too often in this game, uh, but Andrew Johns did certainly use it as a deliberate tactic early in the match, and I hate the fact the punishment was simply a 20-meter restart with a fully set defensive line. I like it that nowadays, if you kick that ball dead, I don't care if it's from five meters out from the line, you give away an extra tackle to the opponent. I think it's a good, uh, a good uh, deterrent. So on second thoughts, what's better now, Miles? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there. The fact that that went unpunished for so long was ridiculous. But look, I've uh, on second thoughts, I've got to say that thank goodness someone managed to, to stick some uh, whatever it is plastic together to to turn out a, t- a kicking tee because man, watching them build those sandcastles and having the ball fall <laughs> off and the sandcastle fall over, gosh, that was just painful to see it through. I reckon it added maybe at least certainly five minutes to one of the John's kicks, but overall in the game at least another 10 minutes to reviewing time so thank goodness that um oh, i i guess steeden uh managed to manufacture these things and the referees rarely called time off as well they just kind of let these yeah. like you know beach malarkey behavior happen it was, <laughs> it was just ridiculous okay the next award is the unsung hero uh, of the premier of the of the win and in this case of the premiership now for me it was the aforementioned 18th man, Leo Dinovar, uh, who played the majority of the season in the halfback position when Andrew Johns was unavailable. Now, Andrew Johns has a punctured lung. He gets surgery on the Tuesday. He's very unlikely to be available for a Sunday afternoon grand final. Uh, so Leo Dinovar is on ice. He's ready to go. On ice is the exact wrong analogy, but I'm going to go around with it anyway. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Joe you're talking about. Yeah, he was on ice. <laughs> Dinova was, was uh, training hard and ready uh, to go. He made his ARL debut for the Knights that year. Um, and after only after playing a couple of seasons for the uh, London Broncos earlier. And he started 17 games at halfback that year. The Knights winning 10 and drawing one of those. So pretty good strike rate. Uh, he also played two games from the bench, including the prelim final. Uh, Dinova played a key role in getting the team into the finals and would have played in the grand final, of course, if Andrew Johns had come to his injury. Uh, immediately after this, obviously, Dinova realized that Andrew Johns was on his way to, if not already, a great player. So he moved to the Western Suburbs Magpies in 1998, uh, which seemed a poor move because the Magpies sucked and his career finished in 1999. Uh, so Leo Dinover is the unsung hero of the premiership for me. Uh, Miles, who's your unsung hero? Uh, well, before I get to my unsung hero, how many times out of 10 do you reckon uh, Leo Dinover is the answer to a Newcastle pub trivia question? Oh, so many. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, my unsung hero is a guy on the same team, Matthew Johns. And... Look, he's my unsung hero because I think he plays a, a really great game here at 5'8". He, he does get, uh, interestingly enough, he does get a lot of the ball from uh, for, at first receiver in this game. And yet we seem to sort of gloss over him, maybe because he's a little bit of a goofball these days, but he, he played a fantastic game in this game and he was a, a great player for the Knights for uh, a few years there and, and unfortunately disgraced himself uh, at the Sharks, which I don't think we should ever forget. Uh, and continues to disgrace himself on television these days. So, look, he, he played a fantastic game, and I think he's um, probably actually not spoken about enough for this uh, grand final that he played. Absolutely, and in an era, I mean, he's, he's often forgotten, um, Matthew Johns, but in an era that had Brad Fittler, Laurie Daly, Kevin Walters. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's just the uh, the kind of slightly shitter older brother of Andrew Johns, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Hold up all the fatter son. Yes, uh, but probably more charismatic. I'll give him that. Uh, I think he's more charismatic than his brother on TV. Um, but uh, but each to their own, I suppose. We're into the final set now, Miles. We've uh, we've lost one of our key playmakers, uh, as we mentioned. Kieran is unavailable uh, through brain injury, not literal brain injury. Uh, he's he's using <laughs> his brain. Uh, hopefully, he's. <laughs> doing well with that oh man <laughs> sorry Kieran <laughs> so we don't have Kieran's crossovers is what I'm trying to get at but we do still have Miles's minutia Miles what do you got for us this week well I want to um, ask you a question with this one how many teams do you think have uh, been minor premier, th- premier three times in a row and won one premiership 
from those three tries? Um, I think the I think the Roosters, I th- like from like seven years ago. I think of the Storm from the mid to late two thousands, mm-hmm. and I can't think of many others. Hey, that's it. It's the Storm. It's the Roosters, and it's this Seagulls team. They won the Premiership the year before this, as you said, over the Dragons, and they lost two grand finals to the, obviously the Knights and the uh, the Canada. Oh, actually, I think the Sydney Bulldogs back you're, then. You're that quite right, actually. Yeah. Crazy little error. Um, it's it's a, a dubious distinction, and it's one that can infuriate fans. But yeah, three minor Premierships, one actual Premiership. That's um, that one would really grate on you. And it would be quite a good trivia question, actually, uh, that Sydney Bulldogs. They always had the Sydney Tigers. Um, yes, of course. The Sydney City Roosters became that after being the East and Suburbs Roosters. So there was, a, there was a few little uh, Sydney teams going around. Uh, okay, we don't have Kieran's crossover, but we will jump straight into Bo's box office, which is where, as a bit of a movie fan myself, I, uh, I like to try and compare this game to a film that was released the same year as the game. So the game was in 1997. Therefore, I've got to try and think of a 1997 film that parallels the game. I've gone with Goodwill Hunting. Like Matt Damon's janitor in the film, the town of Newcastle are largely working class, but there is genius to be unearthed. Sure, those geniuses can lack focus at times. They might occasionally play up and get into trouble. No matter what equations were thrown at them, they were always up to the task, whether it be ridiculous math sums in the movie, or trying to take down a team with more representative players than non-representative in the real game, with a little guidance from a wise old man, be it Robin, Robin Williams or be it Mal Reilly, they were able to defeat the odds and prevail. How do you like them apples, Manly? What I would say <laughs> to Manly. Uh, I would suggest they don't like them apples very much, Miles. Uh, it took them... Took them a little while to win a premiership again. Uh, they went through the whole Northern Eagles phase, uh, and then they came out the other side. They ditched the Bears, and they won in 2008, I believe, against the, Man- uh, the Melbourne Storm. Uh, we need to give this match a rating out of 10 miles. Well, I might let you go first with this one. What do you give it out of 10? Look, I'm going to give it a 7.5. Uh, I thought, it, look, it was a great game. Don't get me wrong. It's it's certainly slipped down the, the, the lists in the pantheon of great grand finals just because of the the sheer amount of great grand finals to follow but it was certainly exciting and it had its its keystone moment at the end with the uh the darren albert try so i'm going to give it a, a very a very strong seven and a half. Seven and a half, otherwise known as uh 3.75 stars in the uh in the movie ranks as i like to Indeed. call it but i am just stalling um i'm gonna <laughs> give it i'm gonna give it an eight uh much for the same reason i i, I think I think you look at games like this from yesteryear, and much like movies, I think you have to forgive them of their faults a little bit. Uh, in, in 1927, when films were silent, you can't expect them to be talking. You know, it's just it's just not what they did back then. So if you if you want someone to play like Jonathan Thurston or Cooper Cronk in 1997, it's just not a thing, unfortunately. So we have to adjust to what we're looking at, and what we're looking at at the time, was regarded as one of the great grand finals. We see a fantastic fullback performance from Robbie O'Davis. We see the, the birth of the, the great Andrew Johns. Of course, he had been playing for a few years, had already played for Australia and New South Wales, but this is where he kind of reached that great pantheon, as we've talked about. Um, and this was like he's, he's, the moment that sort of stamped him as, as being great. Darren Albert's try. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Darren Albert's try is... Uh, always in the highlights reels you, you can you can actually literally picture the way that he sort of puts the ball down turns to his teammates and jumps in the air with two hands up aloft in a fist clenched with his mouth guard as he's smiling uh, <laughs> I can I can picture it almost exactly right because we've seen it that many times it is one of those great things and and if you go back and watch an old movie and let's call it Casablanca it's just you know, movies these days they they just they're written better in terms of like the female parts and stuff like that. But for its time, it was classic. For me, 
8 out of 10, I think, feels about right. So we're going to give it an average rating of 7.75, which is, of course, a strong recommendation because Miles and I are both incredibly contrarian and snobby types. So <laughs> please do go and check it out. It's available on uh, NRL.com and it's also available on YouTube, just on the down low on the NRL uh, channel. Miles, <laughs> thank you very much for tonight. I've, I've had a ball. I also have had a ball. Thank you, you very much, Bo. Um, I almost forgot that uh, that Kieran wasn't here. Oh well, that's because um, <laughs> I actually tried to impersonate Kieran for a while there, but I just my Irish accent just is not up to scratch. I'm afraid. Above the Horizontal is brought to you by the Pioneer Australia. Your regular panellists are Miles Steadman and Kieran Gibson. Our theme song is Tough Nut by Ryan Cross. I'm Bo Nicholson. Hey, thanks for sticking around. You've earned yourself some answers. Question 1. The Knights and the Sea Eagles contested the ARL Grand Final in 1997, which two teams contested the Australian Super League equivalent. The answers are the Brisbane Broncos and the Cronulla Sharks. The Broncos were the premiers in the only Super League comp before the NRL started in 1998, and then went on to win that first premiership as well. Question 2. Can you name all four starting centres for this Grand Final? Well, for Manly there was former All Black Craig Innes and Representative Senator Terry Hill, and Newcastle had Anna McDougall and Owen Craigie, who was just 19. If you manage to get all four, well bloody done. Question 3. Manly had two players on their reserves bench with state of origin experience. Who were they? Cliff Lyons felt like a pretty easy answer if you knew he started off the bench. The tricky one was Neil Tierney, the front rower who represented Queensland in 1997 while the Super League players were unavailable. Well done if you got both of them. And thanks for playing.